man, he's about to make me cry like before I'm even up here. Shoot. Well, yeah, guys, my name is Christian Markle. If I haven't met you yet, um, it's good to see all your faces. And uh, I wanted to say I am a part of the Earlwood small group, which some of y'all are up in the front row. Thank you. Um, And I'm super excited to dive into Isaiah 48 with you guys today. So if you can turn into your Bibles to Isaiah 48, we are going to read verses 1 through 11. Uh, All right, you guys get it. See, I'm I'm in a rush, you know? I'm like, okay, you got it? Cool. Isaiah 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They're created now, not long ago. Before today, you've never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from birth, from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Lord Jesus, may your spirit fill this room right now that you'd uh, fill us with ears to hear and a heart to fully understand your word and to respond in praise, God. Ask that you be with us, continue to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, so I have a confession to make. Um, I'm really bad with cars, okay? Uh, I hate keeping up with them. I have no idea how they work, no matter how many times other people tell me how they work. It just does not make sense to me. And so I don't know if you can resonate with this or not, but I hate oil change day because... You know, I'm in there, and about 30 minutes into the oil change, it's like, Mr. Markle, we've got some bad news for you. (laughs) Oh, your shocks are going bad. Your coolant system has holes. Your catalytic converter is shot. I remember one time specifically, uh, my mechanic was telling me about these particular set of O-rings that were bad. There were a couple lights on the dash, but they were only yellow lights. And like, who does anything with yellow lights, right? Um, And so he's like, okay, you got this that you need to do. Um, 
And he showed me the bill on what it was gonna be for these O-rings. And I was like, what? Like, this is crazy. Like, why can't you just take these little O-rings and pop them under the hood? And he's like, no, Christian, we, we can't do that. We have to open up uh, the hood, take out a big old portion of the engine, take your transmission, um, disassemble some of that. Then we can get to these O-rings and then we can put it all back together. And, and by the way, if you don't do this, Christian, um, your car is gonna go into critical failure real soon. All I wanted was an oil change, y'all. <laughs> I wanted a quick fix. It was a complete unknown to me that my car was about to die. It needed major surgery, and we're not talking laparoscopic surgery. Uh, no, it was a plan that I didn't even know that I needed. And it's this type of situation that we find in the prophetic message to a future people of Israel in exile in Isaiah 48. The whole section of Isaiah 40 through 48 we've been going through has been addressing God's miraculous salvation to Israel. His perfect plan for national restoration from exile, uh, for spiritual renewal, uh, for the forgiveness of Israel's sins, and the final collapse of the arrogant man, the city of the arrogant man. Uh, but in the midst of all these prophecies of hope and justice and peace, Isaiah 48 comes back to the sobering reality of Israel's current state. The car dash is lit up like a Christmas tree. The people of God have changed their address to the Babylonian exile, but not their hearts. They're asking for a political rescue, for an oil change, when it's their hearts that are going into critical failure. God will take care of both, but not in a way that anyone expected. Why? Because of who he is. Because he's placed his name on Israel to be their God and they his people forever. If you're a note taker, we're gonna take a look at three things today in Isaiah 48. Uh, predictable Israel, our surprising God, and his mysterious plan. The first is the predictable unfaithfulness of Israel. Verses one and two addresses Judah's failure to live up to their own name. He uses five descriptors, different descriptors to address them, starting with their pedigree. Hear, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, a people chosen by the creator of the universe to be this special set-apart people who came from the waters of Judah, whose family line is 100% Gryffindor, y'all. If I want to take a little Harry Potter reference, there's not a drop of mud blood in these people, okay? They're descendants of Abraham, Moses, Judah, David, the heroes of God's people. Not only is their status and their pedigree super solid, on the outside they look spiritually connected to God. Isaiah says they call themselves after the holy city, like pledging allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, that kind of allegiance. They're nationalists and they're proud of it. And they proclaim their reliance on the Lord in all areas of their life. But in the end of verse one, there's an, there's an ad of a sobering qualification, but not in truth 
that is genuineness or right, like righteousness or action. They've got this status and pedigree, the only thing they can really hold on to in this exile, and they outward display dedication to king and country, but their words are empty. Their actions are hollow. There's no truth or righteousness in them. They can't even truly call themselves Israel anymore because the word has lost its meaning. The covenant that was established has been broken. Not only was Judah living hypocritically towards God, they were also beginning to look and act like the idols that they were worshiping. In verses three through eight, God's describing how he has worked in the past. I declare it and suddenly it happens, leaving no room for Israel to attribute God's hand to the work of their idols. But Israel remains obstinate, stubbornly refusing to acknowledge God as the source of all of their good. God says their neck is an iron sinew never willing to bow their head in humility. Their forehead is made of brass. Nothing can make them change their mind. 22 times in this chapter, there's reference to hearing, declaring, listening, saying, and yet no reference to understanding, to changing, to repentance. Why? They never truly heard. They never truly understood. In their idolatry, their necks became iron, their forehead brass. They were blind, deaf, and mute to the truth. Imitating more and more every day the metal objects that they worshiped that we saw in 48, 5C. God's message of repentance and faith was foolishness to them. They'd much rather trust in things that they can control and manipulate. Can you resonate with Israel? I can. In my worship of success and influence, rather than finding my worth as God's child, I become more and more insecure, more covetous of the people around me, more discontent. In my pursuit of the security of money, rather than the security in God's kingdom, I end up looking more and more like that almighty dollar that I'm pursuing. Green and wrinkled, envious, haggard, and exhausted. In our attempts to trust in our own idols, to attribute glory and honor anywhere but the Lord of hosts, the sovereign king of the universe, we look more and more deformed and dehumanized rather than godlike and whole. Our attempts to reach for power and control and glory through our own idolatry only blinds us, narrows our horizon, and diminishes our hearts until they're cold and crumpled like a ball of tin. What will God do with such hardened rebels? Such obstinately disobedient traitors? Here lies the surprising character of God. 
found in verses 9 through 11. Let's read it together. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you or chosen you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's focus on himself drives his love and faithfulness for his unfaithful people, for us. In these two verses, there's six references to the essence or nature of God. For my sake, for his name, for his glory, and his praise. How can I encapsulate God's name and his character? Rather than me doing it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him do it, uh, especially in the way that his audience would have known. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7 on the screen, uh, God describes himself to Moses in this way. The Lord passed over him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the nature of God, our God. And he's passionately committed to making his name known through amazing acts of, of mercy and patience, uh, grace, steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiveness of sins, and judgment of sins. In other words, keeping his big and gracious promise, the promise that he made to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to David, that one day he would make a way for all people to be restored. And he made that same promise to the people of Judah, that he would not only save them from exile, vindicating his name and undermining Judah's idolatry, but also save them from themselves, not because of their own merit, but because of his own promise to himself. For God's own sake, he does four things for Judah. He defers his anger. He restrains his anger so that Judah uh, is not cut off from him. He refines them. And then he tries them in the furnace of affliction. He's making a new thing and rescuing them. Why? Again, it's not because of their merit. Notice in verse 10, it says, behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. The whole refinement process for silver is uh, that, you know, silver is intertwined with dross and you got to heat it up really hot for the dross to be able to melt out uh, of the silver. But God can't refine Israel as silver because all there is is dross. Yet in the next sentence, he says, I choose you in the furnace of affliction. For my sake, for my sake, I do it. 
Friends, isn't this good news? That in the midst of being found as dross, as hypocrites, as idol factories and treacherous rebels, that because of who God is, because of his nature of grace, mercy, faithfulness, and steadfast love, not because of our own merit, he defers his anger. He chooses us, refines us, and rescues us from our state of total rebellion. He loves us. He loves you. What a beautiful, mysterious, and praiseworthy God that we worship. Do we have ears to hear and a heart to fully know his glory and to respond with praise? Okay, so God promises to save hardened rebels, but how? This situation seems impossible, super hard to believe practically. God wanted to assure his people that they could believe. When you have a builder planning to build your house or you're going to need a, a surgery done, uh, you want to make sure that uh, they've had some success in the past building houses or doing surgery, right? Um, you want to make sure that they've gone to med school, that they have their architect's license. They've been building and practicing surgery for a while. You're not like the first test case here, right? Uh, well, in explaining God's plan, he starts off with his amazing track record and his credentials to build Israel's faith. The first mention is in uh, verse 3. The former things I declared of old, I announced, and boom, they happened. James, James has touched on this on a few different sermons, so I'm not going to go a ton into this, uh, but I did want to just recognize a few boom moments in, in Isaiah. Um, God foretells Israel's safety against the Syria Northern Israel coalition in Isaiah 7. You guys remember that? Boom, it happened, right? Uh, he, he, uh, he called that Syria and Northern Israel were going to be destroyed by Assyria. Boom, it happened. And then he calls Assyria into judgment in Isaiah 10. Boom, it happens. If the current track record wasn't enough for Israel, God throws down his cosmic credentials, credentials in verses 12 and 13. Uh, I think it's on the screen. He says, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel who I called. I am he. I am the first and I'm the last. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. My hand laid the foundations of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. I think about a regiment snapping too when their commander calls, when I read these verses. But instead of men at arms, God's calling the foundation of the earth and the heavens to his beck and call. We're talking more power than I can comprehend. This God with an immense track record and unfathomable credentials tells Judah he's going to do a new thing. Verse 6 says, it's a new thing that was created now. Not like the ancient idols foretelling the cyclical patterns of the past. This is a new thing that no one expected. That no one could say that they actually knew. 
In verse 14 through 16, we get to hear both parts of what it's going to be, this plan. It's a twofold rescue plan. A political rescue from Babylon by the hand of Cyrus and a spiritual rescue from a quiet voice. The political plan of Cyrus conquering Babylon, which is like an ancient superpower, was already hard to believe. But that the next great superpower who conquered Babylon would just let the people of Judah go home and then give them the resources to do it, it says in Isaiah 44. That sounds nuts. This sort of rescue was completely foreign in the ancient Near Eastern time period. Nobody who was conquered and exiled actually gets to go home. But God says he's going to do it to create a circumstance where no one could ever doubt his miraculous faithfulness. But imagine hearing this while you're in exile in Babylon. This would be utter foolishness to the wise, to the savvy people of that world who knew how the world really worked. Complete and total reliance on such a promise was foolish. We have to do something to be rescued. We can't rely on a promise that just doesn't make sense, can we? This all sounds a lot like how the New Testament describes the gospel. Read along with me on the screen, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 and then 22.25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The wisdom of our world can't comprehend the unfair nature of God's plan to save us. Our world has to come up with its own plan of salvation, self-reliance. If I can be good enough, smart enough, gain enough control, then I can save myself. No one expected this type of rescue that was so solely reliant on childlike trust in God to act. And no one expected the type of spiritual rescue of Jesus, weak, coming down as a baby, living a perfectly gentle and humble life, not shouting his name in the streets, but faithfully doing the work of his father. It was foolishness to the wise, but salvation and wisdom to the weak. God flipped the table of how we understand power. What a mysterious and strange plan. Can we trust it? Can you trust it? To totally rely on God's plan in Christ to save you, to restore you, to heal you rather than yourself. To trust in God to heal your marriage, starting with you. To overcome an addiction. To defend you when you're wronged. To be enough. 
to love you? Can we put our trust in him like a child, even when his plan doesn't make sense? Power in humility, hope in suffering, freedom in faith. God's plan was confounding. So strange and mysterious that when it happened, only God could be glorified for this unprecedented rescue of his unfaithful people. His unfaithful people. That situation still isn't fixed by rescuing them out of their political exile. This, the first eight, chap- eight verses were dedicated to the idea that Judah was utterly lost spiritually. And with those eight verses in mind, combined with uh, 9 through 11's explanation of who God is and his nature, we get this final tag at the end of verse 16. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Nowhere in Isaiah does the spirit of God rest on Cyrus. But yet we're just talking about Cyrus in verse 16. This little line points us back to the fact that Cyrus isn't enough. Israel doesn't need a political rescue. They need a deep-seated heart rescue. There's this cycle that's going on of Judah's rebelliousness, profaning God's name, and then God's deferring his anger, and then more profaning, and then more deferring. Notice it's not, he doesn't say here that God satisfies his anger. He's just patiently kicking it down the road. But something's gonna have to give. He will not allow his name to be profaned, as we saw in verse 11 of 48. And his people won't stop. They can't stop profaning it. What's the solution? It's reintroduced in our next chapter in Isaiah 49. The servant of the Lord who comes to bring justice, to bring peace and restoration to the world, but not in the way that worldly wisdom predicted. Instead of conquering and shedding the blood of the wicked, his own blood was shed. His perfect blood so that we might be rescued. God's deferred anger for Judah's sin, the world's sin, for our sin, was satisfied in Jesus. And as usual, God calls it in Isaiah. See what he has to say in chapter 53, five and six on the screen about the servant. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God is no longer angry with us. Because of who he is, he sent the servant, predicted by Isaiah 700 years before he was born, to pay for our sins and rescue us for the sake of who he is, for his glory 
and for our response of praise. Let's continue to praise him by remembering his love, his faithfulness, and his sacrifice in his rescue plan that no one saw coming. That's foolishness to the worldly wise, but salvation for all of us who trust in him and his plan, who repent, and who believe in Jesus. Lord God, I am so grateful that in the midst of my rebellion against you, Lord, that in the midst of my self-worship and idolatry, because of who you are and because of the promise that you made, you saved me. And I know that's the story of so many people in this room, God. We praise you and we thank you for that. We ask that you'd continue to give us ears to hear and a heart to know you, to truly trust in your plan for our lives, God. We wait on you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good. Good.